Welcome to Status. I am Malihe Razazan. Last summer, Syrian-American journalist and civil rights attorney Alia Malik traveled to the Greek island of Kos, one of several entry points to Europe for Syrian refugees to cover their long and dangerous voyage. In her latest article in the Foreign Policy magazine titled The Road to Germany, $2,400, she writes, Each of the millions of Syrian refugees who fled their brutalized, unrecognizable homeland did so for uniquely personal reasons. The regime bombarding cities, the Islamic State threatening a return to the Dark Ages, and the loss of jobs in a crumbling economy. Yet their quest cohered around one purpose. They all wanted better lives. Some set out on a complicated journey to Europe, with a crude graphic, a flowchart of the route from Turkey to Germany, as a guide. I spoke with Alia Malik about her reporting and the worsening Syrian refugee crisis. The title of your recent piece in the Foreign Policy magazine is The Road to Germany, $2,400. The title refers to a flowchart that maps out the route for refugees are trying to take the dangerous and treacherous journey from Turkey to Germany. And the chart also includes the cost for each leg of the journey. It looks like a a board game more than a flowchart. Tell us more about this flowchart and how it helps guide these refugees and for them to plan their journey. I was asking uh, the refugees that I was following exactly, you know, where they were getting their information from. I was struck that for the most part, they were ignoring journalistic sources. They were ignoring, you know, the information I think that the rest of the world was using to follow the story. And they had their own sources for what they believed or how they would find out what was happening. And that was generally people who had done the, the journey before them or were a few days ahead of them. And one of the, the pieces, like their preparations were often done on Facebook in Facebook groups or mm-hmm. WhatsApp groups. And one of the things that they used while they were on the road, it looks like a game board. I think that's the best way to describe it. And one of the refugees I was following Muhannad had this screenshot on his phone and it's so rudimentary you know it has a picture of a sailboat for when you have to cross by sea has pictures of trains and buses and the costs and that's how they use it and I think it was in part to sort of filter out any excessive information when we were on the trail with them Hungary's border closed mm-hmm. and all of a sudden they had to come up with another plan and I, I just said to one of the refugees I was like well why don't you look at a map of Europe and he's like I don't want to look at a map of Europe you know it was almost like a resistance to excessive information. So I think the sort of simplicity of of the flowchart was also sort of like kind of like mental comfort, almost making it seem like this is simple and child's play. It's kind of like obscuring the reality that this is a crazy journey that, especially for some people who had never even left their small villages or towns, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden they're moving across, you know, several countries. I think maybe this was a way to to make the whole process seem less intimidating. And they were texting this map to one another. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people used it. Other people had copied it on paper and drawn it out by hand themselves. By the end of summer, as you said, European countries like Hungary and Croatia and other countries, they were putting restriction of how many people could come in, and also they were starting to construct fences. Mm-hmm. So did this simple graphic, this flowchart change according to the changing situation on the ground? 
Well, we were already on the road. We were mm. about a day and a half away from Hungary when it when the border closed. So our journey was already in progress. But yes, information filtered back. Essentially, we were with the first wave to cross using Croatia. So of course, they did pass that information backwards to people that were, you know, earlier on the trail th- than them. So why did you decide to do this story to begin with? As somebody who is currently writing a book about Syria and has followed the disintegration of Syria from inside Syria and to many of the countries to where the pieces of like an unraveling Syria have ended up from Jordan to Lebanon to Turkey to Kurdistan to Armenia to Europe, this was a a critical part of the Syria story. And in addition, as somebody who's written a book about the history of Arabs and Muslims in America and that process of becoming American in a place in which you have no roots, it seemed to me this was sort of like a collision of both my critical interests, you know, Syria and the idea of like hybrid identities and how people become part of a place. And for me, particularly, like, you know, the journey is dramatic and it was important for me to report on it directly. But I'm much more interested in sort of the tail end of the story and, and what it's going to mean for Europe to be remade with all these new populations coming in and, and a seeming conscious effort by Europe to reimagine itself as a multicultural place and, and also what it'll mean for Syria to lose all these people. Hmm. Alia, how difficult was it for you personally to cover this refugee crisis. You are a Syrian-American. You have lived in Syria. You have visited Syria numerous times. So how difficult was it? Well, it's obviously difficult because it is, it's, uh, it's really hard to process how and why this is happening. To me, at least, it seems quite avoidable. We're now into our six, the sixth year of this. It didn't have to reach this point. And so it's upsetting, it's angering, it's incredible to see it happening. At the same time, you know, if you're, when I tried to look for positives, if you recall this summer, everybody was obsessed with ISIS and, and ISIS had somehow stolen the story about Syria. And I think the refugees in many ways, and Syria seems to have become like a chess game. And the people were just sort of the chessboard, you know, the moves that were happening on their backs. And there was something about this active really an active agency. And and even if it was one born in desperation, the sort of decision to reject what is happening and to go seek out something, there was something quite inspiring about that as well. During the summer, many reporters were covering the mass movement of refugees into Europe. Many focused on the humanitarian aspects of this tragedy. But we have seen a drastic shift in the tone of the coverage. What explains this shift? Yeah, I think that, unfortunately, that that is correct. I I mean, basically, we've gotten used to really short attention spans here. Even the way in which we did this article by incorporating a comic was sort of a response to the fact that everybody thinks they've already read enough. You've read one refugee article, then you sort of understand what's going on. And... As far as for the tone of the coverage changing, I would like to think it wasn't inevitable, but it kind of is inevitable, especially there are economies in Europe that are, can barely uh, support everybody who lives there as it is, while other ones are booming. And of course, there's arguments that the refugees will be will be a boost to, to the economies. But I mean, it's a huge burden. What Europe has decided to do by taking in these populations, I can understand that it's stretching people's patience and... I don't think that's the positive way or necessarily the only way to look at it. 
But these aren't multicultural places. These aren't countries of immigration the way the United States is. Mm. I mean, not homogenous culture, but by no means one that's as heterogeneous as the United States or Canada, for example. And I think you're going to see growing pains as the society goes through like a massive change. It's going to have to become elastic. And I can see why that would cause tensions in those receiving societies.